You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Hello, my lovely friends. It's great to be with you, and it's an absolute privilege to be able to bring the word today. I hope you can hear me. Um, I want to talk about something today that's uh, something that our society is obsessed with, and it's saving our own lives. It might not be blatant, it might not be blatantly pressed in that way, because you know, it's sometimes disguised as prolonging our lives, you know, trying to prolong our lives as much as possible, you know, trying to pump collagen into our face and stuff to try and keep the wrinkles away and try and keep us going, or, you know, getting really, really fit or whatever it is, trying to prolong our lives, you know, or filling our lives with as much stuff as we can before we die, you know, that's like a desperation. And it's this obsession with trying to save our lives because reality is people are afraid of dying. Am I right? People are afraid of dying. And because they want to fulfill their desires now, as quick as we can. You know, nothing can be deferred. Get it now, as much as you can. And we're challenged with all these kind of things to sort of save us financial stuff, healthy stuff, relationship stuff, the planet. I certainly feel like I'm challenged with all these kind of adverts. And, uh, you know, there's a stark reality facing us that none of us can actually save ourselves. That's it, you know? It, you know, it might be a little bit seem a little bit morbid. I don't really feel like that just now, but none of us can save ourselves because that's the actual reality that we're all staring at death. And it's just a matter of time. So there's this futility to all this rhetoric about what you can do to save yourselves because the world knows it's not true as much as we know it's not true. So you're all like, oh, this is really lightsome. You know, this is really not what I expected. I expected to have a jolly time at church. And yeah, uh, well, I'll lighten the tone in a minute, but I want to talk about something that Jesus says in Mark 8, and he talks about this, and it's so challenging to what's around us, and Graham preached a message about a month ago on a similar point, so, you know, I just felt though that, that the Lord still laid this on my heart, so I thought, well, maybe he needs it repeated, you know, maybe we need this repeated, so uh, it'll be similar, but uh, yeah, I'd encourage you to go and listen to that as well. Um, and as Tom said about Paul, you know, he said in uh, Philippians, I don't mind repeating this, so I don't mind repeating it. But I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So, yeah, to lighten the tone, you know, I'm not that great at saving. Is anybody really, really good at saving? Anybody? Oh, there's no hands. Oh, amazing. <laughs> right, you're all rubbish at saving as well. We're, we're, you know, we tend to be, as people, we're not very good at saving. Because um, there's a lot of tempting things to buy, you know? There's a lot of tempting stuff to buy. And I used to think that Abby, my wife, was better at saving than me, but I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but she's not here, so it's all right. Um, you know, if I squirrel some money away and now she finds it, she's like, what can we spend this on? What can we buy? So, oh, yeah, she's, she's even worse than me. But we as, we as people, we tend to be quite bad at it. You know, we want stuff now. We want it all now. Or, you know, if, we're not, if we don't want to defer something, then we save the wrong things. So like food, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, on a Monday, I'll buy some hummus. I like hummus. I like carrot sticks and hummus and stuff. But I'll be like, ah, I'm going to save the hummus, you know, for the end of the week, for Friday or something. And then I get to the hummus and the hummus is off. And I'm like, why did you do that? 
you know, you, you kind of, sometimes you save stuff, you save some food or something and it goes off because, you know, you're trying to defer the wrong things. You know, you should have used it, but you deferred it. And, and we do that, you know, we can defer the wrong things. Or like Christmas time. Sometimes you ever buy a load of food at Christmas time? You know, remember your mum used to, my mum's here, she's looking at me, used to buy food and don't touch that, that's for Christmas. <laughs> but then sometimes after Christmas, there's some food left. And you're trying to use it up before the sell-by date, you know? Like trying to get, you're saving this stuff and it's gonna go off. You know, so we're, we're kind of bad at saving it, you know? Um, Rona, she was always really good at saving stuff, but more often than not, we're really bad at choosing the right long-term savings plan. That's this whole other element, this financial element, that we're actually usually quite bad at, at doing savings and investment, and that's what I've called this message today. Because there's this attitude around of, get as much as you can, get it now, and keep it. Um, and so sometimes we're quite bad at figuring out how to do that, how to you know, put the, the right savings things and what to invest in, what are the right things we should be saving in compared to the wrong things. So I've got a wee illustration for you this morning. And I'm gonna give you a choice, all right? You can have this penny, it's actually a cent, which is bizarre that I found a cent and not a penny in my house. You can have this penny, or you can have a thousand pounds today, right? But the catch is, catch is, that I'm gonna invest this penny in a savings account that doubles every day for 31 days, right? So tomorrow, it'll be worth two pennies. The next day, that would be worth four pennies, okay? But only for 31 days. So you've got to very quickly work out, is it the thousand pounds or is it the penny? All right, show of hands, thousand pounds. One, two, three, oh, we've got a few, we've got a few. Penny, penny takers. Oh, a lot of penny takers, a lot of penny takers. Oh, she's got to be hand. A lot of penny takers. So that's the catch. So this is something called compound interest. And I'm not a finance person, so this won't be particularly clever, but people have described this as the eighth wonder of the world. And this is 100% you know, interest I was giving you on your penny. If you chose the penny, I'm gonna show you a chart in a second of how much your penny would be worth in 30 days. Any guesses? Any guesses? A million pounds, Whoa, big guess, big guess. Nope, we've got some nodding heads, not, not that much. 1500, right. Here we go, here's my chart. So, on day 15, you've got about 163 pounds. It starts to double up, and on day 20, you've got 5,000 pounds, 5,200. By day 26, you're into hundreds of thousands, because it's doubling every time, and by day 30, you've got 5,368,000. But I said 31 days. 31 days, you've got 10,737,000. Oh, should have took the penny. Oh. So this is a problem I want to address, this part of the human condition, that we think we would rather try and take something that we can get now to try and save ourselves than to be part of something much bigger much more important, much more rewarding, but that's possibly deferred. And that's the first thing I want to highlight, that we're not very good at choosing the right investments, and we tend to just grab onto stuff as soon as we can, take the thousand, you know? Because uh, sub subconsciously we think it's gonna help us to survive. But it won't save our lives, which it obviously can't. Not a thousand, not 10 million. 
it can't save our lives. You might get better health care, you know, if you took the, the 10 million. So you might prolong your life a little bit, um, but it's not going to help keep you stay alive, uh, staying alive. So staying alive. <laughs> but some wealthy people, you know, now, you might be asking, what are you going to do with 10 million? And some wealthy people trying to prolong their lives will actually pay to be cryogenically frozen, right? There's a service that you can call and say, right, I'm going to pay you that when I die, you're going to come collect my body, freeze me as soon as you can, and then in 100 years or whenever they think that the technology is going to be around to wake them up, they can come back from the dead and, and go on living their lives. I think there's some hilarious things about this, right? First thing is, they can never ask the person, did you freeze me? So they can take their body and do whatever they want with it. And they never know, and they just pay them all this money. Plus that company might not even be around in 100 years. Oh, we went bust 50 years in. <laughs> Sorry about that, you know. But we take your money anyway. Yeah, there's, there's some hilarious things about this that you, I just can't believe that people are doing this. But I kind of understand that they think maybe there'll be advances. But the other thing is, you know, if I die when I'm 100, I don't really want to wake up in my 100-year-old body. <laughs> It's not a good enough, you know, it's not good enough. It's not a good enough reason for me to give away my, my 10 million or whatever. But yeah, that happens. You know, we desire to do all we can, often at the cost of others as well, to save ourselves. That's what we see in the world, but the reality is that we can't. So let's go into the text. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. So we're going to look at Mark 8. As I said, Graham gave us some really good wider context to uh, this version of events from Matthew's gospel. Uh, And I encourage you again to go back and listen to that because I'm not going to expand too much on the context here because I just want to drill into this one verse um, instead. So just quickly though, Peter's just had his high and low points. You know, he's just said, he's confessed that Jesus is the Christ. It looks like he's really getting a handle on this, who Jesus is. And then Jesus starts to tell his disciples what's going to happen to him. He's starting to forecast, this is what's going to happen to me soon. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no way. And then he rebukes him sternly. Um, and so then it goes on in verse 34, Mark 8:34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my dis- disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Oof, tough stuff. So what are we looking at here? Well, we're faced with a bit of a problem. And the problem is, like most of Jesus' teachings, this is radical. This is like countercultural, and it sounds a bit crazy as well to most people. If you're able to just sort of accept this, you know, without a second take, you're probably some sort of super saint, you know, or you just haven't really thought about it. It takes time to process this. These phrases are so out there, and they're not what our culture is telling us. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you know, these things are hard to grapple with. Our culture's saying, you know, get what you can, take what you can, as much as you can now, and that's your best chance of survival. And Jesus says, give it all up for me. Deny yourself. Deny your selfish desire to take that little reward and gain that you can make in this world 
and choose me instead and give it all up for me. That's radical. Let go of your grip on your life and your attempts to save yourself and go your own way and release it into my hands. And you know, he's not just talking about financial aspirations. He's talking about ego. He's talking about fame. He's talking about pride. All the things we think we want in this life, he's saying, let go to me. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will find it. It's really radical. So what's he talking about? Let's go a bit deeper into what he means. He's talking about people's choice. He's talking about our choices and our choice to reject him and the gospel in order to preserve what we've got here and try and hold on to it because we perceive it to be of greater value. If, if Jesus was the penny, if that's what he was offering, it's taking the thousand instead of the penny, trying to hold on to something little and think it's amazing when there's something greater and much more valuable. And that seems to be the wise choice at first, to take that money. But we're sacrificing in that way. We'd be sacrificing something far, far greater. And what we'd be sacrificing with Jesus is a new life in God, eternal life beyond, and a promise of this great inheritance in heaven. That's what scripture says. The penny initially seems the foolish choice because the thousand would feel good in your hand momentarily. And he, of course, he's predominantly, he's talking spiritually, he's talking about heart choice and the deep reasons that we hold for the decisions that we make and the things that we choose. He's saying, choose me, choose me and you'll live. Put me first in your heart and you'll live, but if you reject me, you'll face a final death. He's saying, don't take that attractive offer that you see because if you choose me instead, I'll bring you something greater. I'll double down on this investment and the return will be beyond your imagination. It'll be life and life eternal instead of this inevitable death. It's quite an offer. And this is countercultural. Have any of you uh, seen the program Traitors? Some of you must have watched Traitors, no? One, a couple. Yeah, it's really addictive to watch. So if you get into it, beware. You're probably going to want to watch the next one and the next one. Anyway, it's a show where a team of people are put in a, a big castle and they have to compete to win this prize money, okay? So they're, they're a team competing for the money. If they get to the end and they're all still there, they get to keep the money. The team keeps the money. But amongst them, there are these traitors and they don't know who they are. And the traitors every night can eliminate one of the people to whittle down the group. So the team as a whole have to try and identify the traitors and vote them off, but they don't know who they are before the end of the day. Because if they get it wrong, they vote off one of their team members and they end up with one less on their team to get more money to the pot. It's very addictive watching, I'm telling you. So every night they try and eliminate one of these traitors but what's so interesting is that they form friendships and relationships very quickly in this group. And you see them backstabbing one another. You see them going into desperation mode. I got to get some of this money. I've got to get this now for me as much as I can now. And so they'll be willing to throw people under the bus and get, do whatever they can to get this money. And the traitors as well, obviously, they're trying to vote out all these people, but they're becoming friends with them. So there's this whole balance thing going on. 
it's really interesting to watch people, I mean, it's kind of horrible in a way, but it's, it's really interesting to watch people in self-preservation mode, in selfish mode, just trying to save themselves and turn on these friendships. And you know that if one of the traitors won, it'll taste bitter, you know? If you manage to get everybody out and get that money yourself, you know that that's gonna feel tainted, that money. And it reminds me of another traitor who demonstrated exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And he could only think of saving himself and getting the money instead of being part of God's kingdom. Someone who met and spent time with Jesus in the flesh, but he couldn't see or understand the significance of the promise of the life that Jesus offered beyond what the world could offer. And Judas took the money and it stank in his hands and he threw it back to the priests after Jesus' arrest. And our own intentions today, they might not be as despicable as the traitors program, um, but it does speak into our society. I certainly feel like I see a lot of adverts around me and a lot of influences that are saying, get more, get mine, you know, sort yourself out, get this, it's gonna help, make sure you're okay. And this kind of attitude often seems innocent, but you know, Greed always affects somebody else somewhere in the world at some point in the process. So even if you think it's okay, I'm just getting it for me and just, you know, storing it up for myself, it's affecting other people some, somewhere and somehow. And if we allow it, we can let the world program these sort of systems and patterns into our mind that this is how we should go. And Jesus says, don't. He says, follow me, deny yourself, deny the selfish nature that is trying to save you in your own life and instead give it over to me and you'll truly be saved. As Graham mentioned a few weeks ago, don't let the theme tune to your life be the self-preservation society. Because the reality is that we can't deny death. None of us can deny death. You can't preserve your life by any means of your own. That's the truth. But Jesus conquered death at the cross. Follow me, he says, and you too will be reborn, renewed, and have nothing to fear of death because your soul will be saved. Amen. Amen. Praise God. And though he said this at this point in the Bible, you know, it's not the first time that we see this theme in the Bible. There's a very early point in the Bible where we see this theme, Adam and Eve. They're deceived into thinking that they can take wisdom and life on their own terms instead of trusting God and following God and it leads to death. It doesn't just lead to death, it leads to the curse of death that faces all mankind ever since. It's trying to go your own way, trying to do your own thing, trying to save your own life instead of trusting God. If you're following along the Bible in a year, you might be in numbers now. In numbers, the Israelites start grumbling. They're in the desert. Where are they going? They're going to the promised land, abundant life. That's where God's taking them. The presence of God is in the camp. He leads them by his presence. And they're like, this isn't, I don't like this. They start grumbling. They start not liking where they are and they start wanting to take what they can get and go. And they end up, as a result, the rebellious die in the wilderness instead of going into the abundant life that God is promising them. Trying to take matters into our own hands, trying to save themselves and follow their own wisdom 
because they don't think that Moses has got a clue. So, you know, many times in the Bible we can see that as well. People trying to desperately elevate themselves and take what they can get in order to save themselves. Excuse me. They reject God's plan and path and they don't follow him. And the whole point of this being that if we decide in our hearts that we're gonna reject God and that we're gonna reject Christ and do our own thing, we could gain the whole world but lose what's of real eternal value. But if we acknowledge Christ as king in our lives, if we surrender everything in our lives to him, our souls will be saved. So that's what's at stake. That's why it's important. What are we gonna do with this? So I've got three points here. Classic three-point sermon. (laughs) So the first one is the investment. Well, I mentioned that Jesus is predominantly speaking about heart choices, you know, our motivations, what we decide in our hearts. What What it requires of us here, what we do is, it requires of complete abandonment of ourselves to Jesus. It's no small thing. Complete abandonment of ourselves to Jesus. It's laying down everything before him and saying, I surrender all. All my plans, all my finances, my family, I trust you with everything. And maybe this is the first time that you're hearing this and you think it's a bit crazy, that's okay. It takes time to process. Maybe this is you know, the millionth time you've heard this but I'll tell you it's a repeat process. It's a repeating of laying down your life. If you start today, it doesn't mean that in three weeks you won't have to do it again. Because you have to lift up your hand and say, God, you know what, I tried to do it again and I give it all back to you, Lord. And I lay down my life, I surrender all. I know what happens to me. And sometimes it's with good intention, you know, you're trying to do the best for your family or, you know, you've listened to something that you think this is really, really wise, but you're not sure about your intentions and your heart choice. And that's where you have to examine yourself. What are my motivations with this? Is it to get more for me, to get more, to get mine? Or is it, you know, this kind of self-preservation thing? Or are you asking for God's wisdom in all you do? Say, guide me in this. What's the best thing for me to do? Because you're going to have to make investments. You're going to have to make these kind of decisions in your life. But it's your heart motivation and your choice to say, no, God, I put you first in all of this. It's laying down our lives and it's radically countercultural whilst living in the midst of our culture. And though this is a heart decision and it's, you know, it's predominantly a spiritual thing, A few chapters on, Jesus gives us this very real physical example of this too. And as the disciples learn as well, sometimes it's laying down your life physically. He went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross and submitted completely to God's plan for salvation for the world. He paid this ultimate cost by laying down his life out of love for us and total submission to the Father. But he went through this knowing that he would be remade, reborn, that in doing this he would conquer death, that the great and fearsome thing that nobody can escape, that he would conquer it once and for all. Though we might suffer physically for his name, we have nothing to fear because death has been overcome. And he calls us to not even try and save our physical lives for his sake, 
if that's the case when it comes to it because he's overcome death. You know, if we've made the heart decision that I'm not gonna hold on to my life physically, spiritually, but I'm gonna give it back to God, then physical death for us, you know, should have no fear. How can we fear it anymore? We said at the beginning that everybody fears death. Jesus is saying you don't need to fear this anymore because of what I've done. Because he's promised eternal life, new life, and that's what he offers us. And he's teaching us not to fear death. It's the only way that you're gonna save your life. This is the only way you're gonna save your life. So you can reject it, that's okay. But you're not gonna find another way to save your life. That's the truth. And this is the paradox, is that you have to, to save your life, you have to completely and regularly abandon it to Christ and give it up to Christ. It's investing your life with Christ. Laying down your life is the investment. So he's talking about the heart predominantly and about this heart decision and choices. Uh, and he actually presents that real physical example by giving up his own life on the cross as well. You know, and many of his followers, many, many of his followers since have physically given up their lives for his sake as well. Many of them on crosses. Because they believed it was worth the cost. Instead of holding tightly onto everything we can and our finances and our homes and our families and our very lives and doing what the world is telling us, it's worth it surrendering it to Christ for the greater reward of saving our souls and entering into internal, eternal inheritance. That's the first challenging part of this, abandoning everything to Christ. Point number two is ROI, not a finance guy again, but you know, finance term. Return on investment. This is a performance measure that's used to estimate how profitable your return's gonna be. So you might have done it with your penny. You might have used this ROI thing to measure how you, how you forecast what it's gonna be. So if the world was using an ROI on our investment with Christ, what do you think it would look like? I think it would get a poor forecast in the world's eyes. You know, the real world outcome of this, of choosing Jesus, I just painted it a little bleak, you know. You might die. You might lose your life physically. This is foolishness to the world. You might get persecuted and killed for the investment you made. It doesn't sound that great. I don't think the ROI would be, would be saying, saying much good. You know, the truth is that if you've decided this already, or you're gonna decide this, this decision is gonna be mocked. You're gonna get mocked for this investment. Your decisions uh, as you do this are gonna, they're gonna start to change and you're gonna be starting to be transformed as you repeatedly offer your heart and your mind and your body to Christ and his way and you start to look less and less sensible to the people around you. <laughs> because they're desperately trying to save their own lives and this makes no sense to them because they're part of the self-preservation society and you're saying something and doing something that's completely opposite to the self-preservation society. Occasionally, this is gonna command respect from people, you know, that you, you know, stick up for your faith or you're true to what you believe, 
but more readily it's gonna be mocked. You'll be mocked for following Jesus. The submissive servant king who had no throne, no gold, no army, and he was brutally killed as a criminal. That's who you're investing with. What kind of king is that? What kind of king is that to follow? He's unsuccessful by the world's measure, for sure. But we know him as the king of kings. And once again, in a few chapters on, we see that Jesus, he gives us an example of this happening to him and how he endured it in the cross mockers, that's what I've called it. Jesus himself was challenged to save himself. Save yourself, they called, as he hung on the cross. And just as the world says, you know, they they saw him defeated, nailed to the cross, bleeding to death and suffocating. And they said, save yourself. And he said you could save save other people. They're so focused on physical well-being and on holding on to mortal life that they completely were blinded to the spiritual depths of what he was really capable of. And they taunted him with it. And he, and he knew full well as he hung there on the cross that he could bring himself down and it could be ended with a word. Can you imagine knowing that? I can just stop, I could stop this like that. Save yourself! As they laughed and jeered him. And strangely, they were right. He couldn't save himself. But they were right for the wrong reasons because he wasn't held there by the nails. He could have brought himself down physically and astounded them and some of them would have believed in him. But then his entire mission to save the many and break the curse of death would be for nothing. As D.A. Carson says in his book, Scandalous, he wasn't held there by the nails, but by the moral imperative laid down by his father. That's what kept him on the cross. And they shouted, he saved others, but he can't save himself again. True, he saved others, but he couldn't save himself physically in that moment because to do so would be to ruin the plan, the purpose, and the salvation of the world. And he knew that there was, a, there was something more, something better to come, and something more important, more purposeful, more glorious, more powerful. And so he endured the mocking and the taunting and the pain and the weight of sin and the wrath of God against sin being poured out on him on the cross knowing that he would redeem humanity through this. Knowing that he'd be resurrected with a new body and once again, ultimately, he'd be glorified above all the powers, above all rulers, above all authorities and thrones and sit down at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. He had to go through death to beat and conquer it in order to save the many. And just as with his own earlier words, as he usually provides us with the example, He gave up his physical life for the sake of the gospel. He gained eternal glory by not treasuring his mortal flesh. But again, paradoxically, he was actually raised with a new body in the flesh. In the flesh, he was a failure, though, and shamed and ridiculed. And he was foolish, you know. It looked foolish to outsiders and still does. But God uses the foolish things and the lowly things to shame the wise. It's the upside down nature of God's kingdom. So what laying down every aspect of your life to Jesus is gonna look like to the world is foolishness. 
you're going to get mocked for it. The wise in the world, you know, they can't estimate the glory to come. They can't estimate that what we gain in knowing Jesus now and for eternity far outweighs anything the world has got to offer us. It'll result in being mocked, looked down on, possibly persecuted and potentially even killed for following Jesus. But we must be prepared for that. Because the weight of what he offers us is saving our souls in the promise of inheritance in heaven. This is greater than what the world is offering and it's worth being mocked for. It's a small thing in comparison. And even if it's unpopular, we must be prepared to just speak his name out. Because he said in verse 38 there, if anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them. We've got to be prepared to speak up even when we're being mocked for this. Because this is taking the penny instead of the thousand pounds. On the surface, it seems unwise. And at face value, it's going to get mocked. And that's what this decision is going to look like if we follow him. We're going to appear to be foolishness to the world. But what's the result? This is point number three. The return. The result of this decision and continually deciding to surrender our lives to Jesus and give up our attempts to save ourselves is like taking the penny. The benefits are beyond what we can comprehend. The interest is accumulating. It's like the 10 million on the screen, but far, far greater. The first being, I've got sub points here. The first being, no fear in death. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five. As we grow in his word, in his love, and in this relationship with Jesus, we can gain true security. Our fear of death is stripped away. And the hope and the assurance of life beyond what we have here or can strive to get just grows and grows as fear is eliminated. What was once a crippling fear just melts away slowly as we comprehend living for eternity in new bodies with God. And if you think this is all sounding really crazy, that's okay. Just go and ask some of the people here after why they have this assurance, why they have this joy, why they have this deep peace. Some of the people in this room will give you their experience of what God's done in their life and how they know this assurance deep in their hearts. Another result of this is fullness of life in this life. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that we have new life in Christ when we receive him and that the old has passed away. It's as if we've already died and we've been transferred into this new realm, this new kingdom realm, and we leave behind our old traits as he starts to transform us to be more and more like him perfecting us and giving us joy and peace as we trust in him. It doesn't mean that our circumstances, though, are going to suddenly be perfect. We're not expecting perfect circumstances, but he gives us new strength and motivation at how we look at them, how we face them, and how we deal with them. We're able to say to the circumstances, I'll trust in the promise of Jesus because his divine power has given us everything we need for life, 2 Peter 1.3. He also promises to be with us in this walk. He doesn't just leave us on our own, but the Holy Spirit lives in us and we can constantly commune with God. 
And he says, I'll always be with you. These are promises of Jesus. Lastly, is the eternal return or our investment. I know I've said it all the way through, but I'm gonna emphasize it now. You know, even the penny analogy is pretty poor here because 10 million doesn't come close. It couldn't buy what Jesus offers, that's the reality. No amount of money or value can buy what Jesus offers. He says it himself again in verse 37, what can anyone exchange for their soul? There's nothing we can offer Jesus that he doesn't already own, except your heart. That's all we really have to give to surrender. And in return for this very puny but important investment that we offer him, is something that we can't fully comprehend, what God has prepared for us, everlasting life. And I can't tell you exactly what it's gonna be like because quite frankly, I don't know. But I do know what the Bible says about it. It's living in God's presence in a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth with no more pain, no more suffering. And this is the promises of scripture. I'm gonna read some of them now. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4. And Peter says in 2 Peter, we shall be like him, partaking of the divine nature and living in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Revelation 2. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son, Revelation 2. Paul says in 2 Timothy that there's a crown of righteousness laid up for those who endure faithfully. In 2 Peter, he says again, be diligent in your calling and an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself says, I'm going to prepare a place for you to his disciples. You know, he offers us this glorious return on our investment with him, one that we can't attain or achieve off our own backs with our own efforts, something that no one can offer except him, the salvation of our souls and eternity with God. Leslie, do you want to come up just now? I'm just wrapping up, guys. You know, my main point here, if you hadn't noticed, is don't forfeit Jesus to win in this life. Don't try and save your own life, rejecting God, but instead abandon your life to Jesus to save it eternally. That's the point. If you know Jesus already, you know he's got you. But keep watch, keep surrendering again and again because the mockers are gonna come telling you to save yourself and the persuader's gonna come and try and convince you into self-preservation. So keep watch and keep surrendering. And we need to do this because this is of such eternal, significant value in comparison to what we can gain here. And his is the only way. And this is my, as a part and thought here. Again, you might, you might think this is really morbid, but in a hundred years, everybody in this room is gonna be dead. 
slowly forgotten. All of us. And that might seem really, really morbid or stark. That's the reality. So no matter what you have in your bank account, or in your house, or how many letters you have before your name, or how fit you are, or whether you're cryogenically frozen or not, that's the reality. So what are you going to do with that? What is there you can do with that? Jesus says, give your life to me. Follow me. Don't try and save yourself. Follow me and be my disciple and you can have a relationship with God, with the living God, the creator, the author of life. And Jesus says, not only will he be with you on this walk in this life, but he promises you this inheritance that is more glorious than we can fathom. And he'll give us a new life and for eternity in heaven and a new earth to come. So what are you gonna do? Because the difficulty is I've told you now. So you're going to have to decide. And Jesus made it very clear. Don't reject me for death. Follow me for life. And I'm not going to pretend it's going to be free to you either. Because it's going to cost you everything. It's free and it will cost you everything. Because we have to continually submit everything we have to his lordship our physical, our spiritual, our material possessions, everything, all our plans. And his example is one of a suffering servant that gave his life up for us only to receive it back, immortal, glorified, and risen. That's who Jesus is. And that was really costly. And it was worth it to him to do all that for you. Is it worth that cost to us to give it all up for him? to receive life if we die to ourselves and follow Christ we gain everything and live forever if we try to hold on to this life and whatever trimmings and stuff we can get we'll die forever it's not an easy choice but I'll tell you it's worth it it's like compound interest it's worth taking what looks like the measly penny now and risk being mocked for the decision but gain everything and I believe with all my heart that it is so I'd encourage you if you're there if you're thinking about this give it all to Jesus give your life to Jesus call on him now repent of sin and say Lord I need you I want you come into my life because I want to live